Well, we have been in this series, Five Things God Uses to Grow Your Faith, and I hope it has been as helpful for you um, listening and watching as it has been helpful for me reminding myself of, of these truths. But what we've been saying is simply this, that God wants you to have a big, bold, living, active, abiding faith in Him, real trust in Him. God wants a relationship with you and wants to grow your relationship, and relationships are built on trust. And so God wants to grow your trust and your faith in Him. So more than anything, God wants to grow our faith and our trust in Him. And so we've talked about the things that God will use to grow our faith over time, to grow our trust in Him. He'll use practical teaching. He'll use private disciplines. He'll use personal ministry. He'll use providential relationships. And today, as we talk about the fifth thing that God will use to grow our faith, here's what it is. It's pivotal circumstances. It's pivotal circumstances. Now getting started, before I actually define a pivotal circumstances, how many of you have ever had a pivotal circumstance in your life? Like if you have, would you hit the like button right now? Maybe you would hit the angry bar if you're on Facebook. Like we don't know what emotions it all brings out of us, but many of us have had a pivotal circumstance in your life. Yeah, look at that. Look at all the people right now who are saying, yeah, I've had a pivotal circumstance. Yeah, we all have had pivotal circumstances. In case you're wondering what I mean by pivotal circumstances, let let me give you my definition. A pivotal circumstance is a circumstance of life that causes your life to pivot automatically and immediately. A pivotal circumstance is a circumstance of life that causes your life to pivot automatically and immediately. Again, yes, I did make that definition up myself. Yes, you can choose to use it as your definition if you want. This is how we describe pivotal circumstances. All of us know what it's like to have one of those moments. And many of us, our faith story can't really be told without talking about those moments where life turned on a dime. And because of the dramatic change in life, it causes us to look at God or look to God in a fresh way, in a new way to dig deeper than we ever had before. And our faith ended up growing as a result of the circumstances of life. See, these can be positive events. These can be positive events. It could be falling in love with a person of faith. It could be having a child and wanting to raise them to know and love God, and, 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 and that made you re-engage your faith. It could be an answered prayer where you prayed with your little faith, thinking that it was impossible, but God answered your prayer and your faith blew up. It could be that you got a big raise, and for the first time in life, you had so much money, you didn't know what to do with it, and you realized that all of that money didn't make you happy And so it made you question some things about the things that you had been chasing. It could be some of those good things. Let's be honest. Positive pivotal circumstances can draw our attention to God. But if we're honest, but if we're honest, most of the times the the ones that draw our attention to God are the events and the situations and the circumstances that are negative in nature. It could be the inability to have a child. It could be the loss of a loved one. It could be an unexpected diagnosis. It could be a painful revelation by someone that you love. It could be a breakup that you didn't see coming. It could be a divorce. It could be a strained relationship with your adult son or daughter. It could be the entire world getting shaken um, over the course of an entire year like no one expected. Like, like, let's be honest, for some of us, for some of us, that's your story over the last year. That while the world got shaken, when the world got shaken, you looked to God because the world had no answers. And so you looked to God. And while the world was shaken, the world was shaken, the world was shaken, your faith has never been stronger because it forced you to look to God in a way that you hadn't in a long time. Your faith has grown and grown and grown. Isn't that true? That that's what happens as, as, as when we go through some of these pivotal circumstances, some of, some of these painful moments, our faith ends up growing and growing and growing. We all know this. There are some life circumstances so painful, they leave an indelible mark on our life and on our faith. C.S. Lewis put it this way. 
God whispers us, whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. It is his megaphone to wake up a sleepy and an unhearing world. Unless we think this is just some Christian attempt to get, to get God out of a bind or explain something about God that doesn't really seem to make sense or something that doesn't seem to line up with who God is, the New Testament actually, actually talks about this. The New Testament talks about James, the brother of Jesus, makes this really clear. Here's what he said in James chapter 1. He said, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. The Bible, the New Testament, the brother of Jesus actually teaches and illustrates that the events that test and strengthen, that test our faith often strengthen and launch our faith. We would say it this way, that trials or testing leads to perseverance. And if we allow perseverance to keep working, it leads us to a mature faith, a stronger faith, a better version of of faith. Now, one of the clearest examples of this dynamic comes from the life of Jesus. Comes from comes to us from the life of Jesus. During his earthly ministry, he had his 12 disciples that were close to him and around him all of the time. Then he had a number of close friends, people that he that scripture records that he loved, people who followed him and people who he loved deeply. And in particular, there was a family of two sisters, Mary and Martha, and one brother named Lazarus. And the thing that you can't miss about this story is the relationship between the tumultuous event and faith. There's a serious event, there's a pivotal circumstance, and what happens to faith. It is a connection that we don't have to make, we don't have to establish. Jesus and John make sure that we could not miss it. In John chapter 11, we're told this, now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. Now, this is an interesting note. This, par this parenthesis event hadn't actually happened yet. John is letting us know that, hey, when you hear about this later in my gospel, this is that lady. This is that lady. Now, this lady, so this sister, would become someone who would be so connected with Jesus that she would actually wash his feet with her hair, which is kind of a weird thing to do, but that was how close they became. Verse 3, we're told this. So the sister sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When Jesus heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. And if you read that verse and think like, Whew, if I'm trying to predict the future, yay, Jesus is going to help out. Jesus is going to come heal our brother. Jesus is going to come take care of Lazarus. He's going to answer the prayer. He's going to answer the letter. He's going to show up with his presence and with his power. And he is going to do good by Lazarus. He's going to do good by Mary and Martha because he loves them and because he cares for them and because he knows about their needs. And because he said, this sickness will not end death. No, this is going to bring glory to God. Yeah, he's going to show up and he's going to heal Lazarus. And then here's what we're told. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Again, Jesus loved them. Jesus loved them. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. We're told he loves them. He loves them. It's only said specifically about a handful of people in the Gospels. Again, Jesus loved the world. Jesus came to save the world. But when we talk about how he emotionally felt and the, the love that he showed, it, we're only told by, about a very few specific people that Jesus actively loved. Jesus loved them 
So when he finds out their brother is sick, he stayed where he was. What is going on here? This is a really weird dynamic at play, right? Because Jesus told the disciples, this won't end in death. But this situation, Lazarus' sickness, will bring God glory. So the disciples are thinking either Jesus knows that it's not that serious and Lazarus is going to live, but these sisters, they also know how important and how valuable Jesus' time is, and so they wouldn't bother him if this wasn't serious. So what's happening? Jesus stayed. You could make the argument, you could make the argument that these people did not need some inciting incident to get them to look to Jesus. Their brother was sick. Their first response when their brother was sick was to get Jesus' attention. Their natural thing is like, hey, let's, let's go to Jesus. They already had faith and trust in Jesus. You could very definitely say, say this about Jesus' approach in this story. Jesus didn't just leverage a pivotal circumstance to build faith. He went out of his way to create one. Jesus didn't just leverage a pivotal circumstance to build faith. He went out of his way to create one. This should tell us something about Jesus and how much he values our faith and our trust in him and how much he values growing our trust in him, that he would actually cause and go out of his way to develop and make happen and create an avenue for people to grow their faith in him. He would push them towards a pivotal circumstance. Now here's what we're told in verse eight, but Rabbi, the, the disciples said, a short while ago, the Jews were trying to stone, the Jews there tried to stone you and yet you were going back? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble for they see by this world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble for they have no light. And this is a little mini trust me lesson from Jesus. Jesus is telling them that they can walk into difficult situations that other people can't walk into because they walk with him who brings light and brings life to any situation. After he said this, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. If he sleeps, he'll get better. And if you're Jesus, this is where you look up to God in heaven and you go, like, these are the guys, these are the guys who are going to lead this thing when I'm gone. Like, these are the guys. I mean, I love them. I love them a whole lot, but man, are they dense. Like, are you sure this is the plan? Are you sure this, are you sure these are the guys? So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I am glad I was not there so that you may believe. Now, if you're watching, would you just type believe in the chat bar right now? He says, I'm glad that I was not there. I told you that this would not end in death, but Lazarus is dead. And he says, for your sake, I'm glad that I wasn't there to do something to save him from death so that now you may really believe. He said, but let us go to him. See, here's the thing. Difficult circumstances, pain, and tragedy are legitimate tools in God's toolbox to build and grow our faith in Him. And can I tell you something? I don't necessarily like this. Or over the course of a lifetime, I'm, I'm learning to trust it, but I don't like this. That Jesus is a master craftsman. This is what I'm learning to trust. That Jesus is a master craftsman who knows what is necessary at every point of your life, at every point of my life and my, and my faith to shape us into the men and the women that he wants us to be. And if he needs to turn up the heat and if he needs to apply some pressure, the heat and the pressure of life are tools in Jesus's hands. 
that these are legitimate tools in Jesus's toolbox to help us grow into the men and women with the faith that he wants us to have. See, Jesus told them something terrible has happened and they knew that Jesus could have stopped the terrible thing from happening, which left them with all kinds of questions about Jesus. But the end result of this terrible thing will actually be that their faith in him will have grown. They will have a deeper faith in him when they see what he does on the other side of this terrible circumstances, that through this set of circumstances, they will see something of him that they have not seen before. Verse 17, we're told this, on his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been dead and in the tomb for four days. Now, Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed home. These two sisters have very different responses. One runs to Jesus, one isolates herself from Jesus. One runs to Jesus, one isolates herself from Jesus. This is the double-edged sword of pivotal circumstances. That the very thing that God uses to grow our faith can also be a thing that takes out our faith, depending on our response. But here's the beautiful part of Jesus that we're about to see. Jesus came for the one who naturally ran to him and the one who naturally hid from him. Jesus interacts with both sisters, that one ran to him, one hid from him, and Jesus came to interact with both and meet them in their pain. In verse 21, we're told this, Lord Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, if you had been here, if you had been in here, my brother would not have died, but I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha answered, I, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life, and the one who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. This is a beautiful interaction. The one who runs to Jesus is still frustrated with Jesus and has questions for Jesus. And Jesus can handle that pain and can handle that frustration and can handle those questions. Jesus never chastises Martha. He never says, oh, you have little faith. He never does that. He simply reminds her of who he is. And even though she misses it, he lets her know that this is not the end of the story, that there is resurrection power that has come to their house. Verse 28 says this, after she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and he's asking for you. In other words, hey, Mary, hey, hey, your absence has been noticed. Your absence has been noticed. And I think Mary was going good because we noticed his absence when, he, when our brother died. Now I'm going to go and give him a piece of my mind and let him know just how ticked off I am at him. He, he's noticed my absence. Well, I noticed his absence. So Mary goes to Jesus in verse 29. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, again, if you had been here, if you had just showed up, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. My brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where, where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. And then Jesus wept. Verse 35, Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him? But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Again, Jesus is confronted with the emotional 
nature of this moment, with the pain, with the frustration, with the doubt, with the, with the angst, with the, if you had been here, this didn't have to happen. And he's absolutely okay with it. He can handle all of the emotion that comes with our pain and our frustration. But that last, that verse 35, Jesus wept. It's the shortest verse in the entire Bible, maybe one of the most powerful and the most meaningful. See, someone pointed this out, this out to me recently. Jesus knew the end from the beginning. Jesus knew where this was going from the start of the story. Jesus knew where this was ultimately going to go from the moment that he got news that Lazarus was sick. Jesus knew what was going to happen, and Jesus knew what he would do as a result. Jesus knew, but spoilers, spoiler alert, in case you haven't heard the story of Lazarus, what's about to happen is Jesus is going to raise Lazarus from the dead. He knew that Lazarus would die and that he would raise him from the dead. And yet at the same point, he knew the end, he knew the end from the beginning, but he chose to walk with the people involved in the entire story. He chose to enter every bit of emotion. He chose to weep with those who weep. He chose to get frustrated with the people who were frustrated with him. He chose to allow people to beat on his chest and then say, if you had been here, this didn't even have to happen. Like, like he did not sidestep or, or dismiss their emotions at any point of the story. Jesus has caused this pivotal circumstance so they can see his glory, but he doesn't dismiss or sidetrack or short track or, or shortcut any part of the story so that they can see and experience and feel everything that they need to feel so that at the end of the story, they are amazed by Jesus across the entirety of of the story, and they see that Jesus has had a plan all along. In verse 38, here's what we have. It says, Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there's a bad odor, for he's been there four days. That's the type of thing only a sister gets to say at her, at her brother's tomb when Jesus, who you believe has the power of life and death, is saying to open the, to open the tomb so I can go see him. But Lord, there's a bad odor. He's been there four days. Then Jesus said, did I, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here that they may believe that you sent me. In other words, Jesus, Jesus is praying a prayer to God, like, hey, God, I'm praying this prayer so that everyone knows that I'm praying a prayer to you so that they'll know that you hear me, so that they'll believe in me because you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Therefore, therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did, believed in him. That's the connection between a pivotal circumstance and our faith. Jesus performs the miracle, raises Lazarus from the dead, and we're told that many who did not believe in Jesus previously believed in Jesus from this point forward. You know what we're not told? And but I but I guarantee happened. Martha, Mary, and Lazarus and the disciples, their faith grew by leaps and bounds as a result of this. People who had previously believed in Jesus as a great teacher and a healer now saw that Jesus actually had the power to raise the dead to life because of their experience, because of their loss, because of the sickness, because of the pain, because of the delay, because Jesus didn't immediately answer their request. They all got to witness something that was unbelievable and undeniable. They saw his full power on display. And it only happened on the other side of their pivotal circumstance and their faith 
would never be the same. That's how God works in pivotal circumstances. That's how God moves and grows our faith through the pivotal circumstances of life. And here's the thing. God will use the pivotal circumstances, the good ones and definitely the negative situations to grow your faith in Him, to help you see something about Him that you won't see on any normal average Tuesday, to experience His goodness and His faithfulness through the storm and come out knowing that God is above and beyond the storm. And so the question that we have today is simply this, well, what do you do with that? Because you can't schedule a pivotal circumstance. And let's be honest, even knowing the potential benefits of this and knowing that our faith could grow, very few of us would ever choose a pivotal circumstance like this. Very few of us would choose to walk into the storm. Very few of us would choose to go through the difficult times of life, even, even knowing what, could, what, what can happen as a result. Very few of us would choose this. So the question is this, when, when life hits us with a storm, when life hits us with a pivotal circumstance, when God brings a, a circumstance that causes everything to turn on a dime, how do we respond? How do we look to God and allow Him to continually use these moments to grow our faith and our trust in Him? couple thoughts here. The first one is simply this, to focus on your respond ability. Focus on your respond ability. Now that isn't a word, but it's an important idea. That isn't an, a word, but it's an important idea. So much of what happens to our faith in these pivotal moments in life is determined by our response. What happens to our faith is ultimately determined by our response, by where we look and where we turn and who we run to and who we blame and who we point fingers at and where we go with our emotions in the midst of our pivotal circumstances. So here's a couple questions to ask about your natural responses. Do you look to blame God or embrace God? Do you look to blame God or to embrace God? Do you point your finger and go, if you had just done, you could have spared us, like you could have, like, or do you run into his arms and say, God, this hurts, but I'm going to trust in you. Do you look to blame God or do you look to embrace God? The second question is this, do you need it to make sense in a moment or can you patiently allow God to work over time? Do you need it to make sense in a moment? Like every, every single moment, I need it to make sense. I need to understand what's going on right now. I need God to show his hands like right this second. Or can you allow God to be patient and let it work so that at the end, when God has worked all things together for good, that you see the good that God has created? Can you allow God to be, pa can you be patient with God as God works over time? Here's the third question. Do you give God the silent treatment? Or do you keep praying like he's your only hope? Let's be honest. I think some of us, We've learned these bad habits in our relationships with other people that if we go silent, we get our way. And some of us have tried to bring that approach into our relationship with God, and it does us no good. But some of us, when we, get, when we don't get our way, we go silent before God. And we don't bring him our requests. And we don't have a conversation. And we don't say, God, what are you doing here? God, I just need to hear from you because if I hear from you, I can make it through anything. We just simply go silent. Or... In our response, do we actually keep coming to our Heavenly Father and saying, God, if you'll speak to me, I can get through anything. If you'll give me one word, if you'll give me an encouragement, if you'll let me know that I can get through this, I know I can get through this because I trust in you. Do we, do we go silent or do we keep coming to God in prayer? Here's the next question. Do you listen to everyone else's interpretation of what God is doing or do you allow God to reveal himself? Let's be honest. So many of us, we're guilty of asking a whole bunch of people who have no, no clear understanding of God what they think God might be doing instead of going to God and going to his word and allowing God to reveal himself and show himself strong. Here's the final question. Do you assume that negative circumstances are a punishment from God 
rather than an opportunity for God? Do you assume that negative circumstances, that these pivotal circumstances, these life changes on a dime circumstances are punishment from God? Or do you assume that these are opportunities for God to show himself and to grow your faith? See, here's the thing. There's a million questions I could ask. But if you get those five right, it keeps you returning to your heavenly father. It keeps the lines of communication open. It keeps you coming back to the only one who can actually meet your need and answer your prayer and, all, and work all things together for good. That's the power of what happens when you keep coming to your heavenly father. So, and then here's the second thing that I would say in, in how we respond to this to make sure that God can use these moments to, to grow our faith in Him is simply this. You leverage the other four things consistently that God uses to grow our faith. You leverage the other four things as a solid foundation. You know what's unfortunately true about people who lose their faith when, when, when life gets shaken? They're going through those situations alone or with people who don't care about their faith. They, they don't have disciplines that root them in the word and the wisdom of God. They often aren't involved in anything beyond themselves, so it feels like all of life is happening to them. And they haven't grounded themselves in places of practical teaching that help them know how to respond in the middle of a storm. And so here's the thing. If none of the other four things are being leveraged, when a pivotal circumstance hits, faith can easily fall apart. You know what's true of people who go through these types of situations and, and their faith grows and they come out on the other side stronger? They have incredible godly people around them who pray with them, who cry with them, who serve as an anchor for their souls and will not let them drift. They have spiritual habits, spiritual disciplines that keep them connected to the word and to the wisdom of God and keep them keep push keep pushing them back to relationship with God. They are connected to personal forms of ministry that remind them that all of life is not happening to them and there's a world beyond them that needs them to, to keep going and to keep holding strong. And they root themselves in practical teaching that helps them know how to respond to the difficult situations of life. In other words, they leverage the other four things so consistently that God can use the fifth thing when he chooses to. So we leverage the other four things consistently to form a solid foundation for our lives so that God can use this and, 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 the, and when life gets shaken, we don't get shaken and our faith doesn't get shaken, but our, our faith actually grows in God. See, I want that to be true of you and I want that to be true of me, that we don't lose faith in the most difficult moments of life, but that through the difficult moments of life, our faith actually grows. See, God wants you to have big faith in him. God wants you to have confidence that he's with you and that he'll never leave you. God wants you to have faith and to grow your trust in him. And he wants that to grow and to grow and to grow throughout the course of your life. And he'll leverage anything, even the difficult moments of life, to make that happen because he cares about how big your trust in him really is and how big it can grow. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this story. God, thank you for this story that, that seems to be so familiar to, to so many of us. Not because we've been Lazarus or Mary Martha, but because we've been in similar situations where the circumstances of life just hit us hard. And it made us question you. And it made us question things about that we thought we knew to be true about you. And God, I thank you that in the middle of this story where there's so much of that, God, that we can also know that on the other side of the circumstances, you show yourself strong. You show yourself true. You show yourself faithful. 
You show yourself loving and kind. And so God, I pray that we would simply trust you to be who you have always been. And God, that when we face the circumstances of life, when we face these pivotal moments, when we face the moments that want to shake our life and shake our faith, God, that our life and our faith would not be shaken, but would actually grow and flourish and be stronger than ever as a result of who you are and what you do for us. So God, for every single one of us, whether we're facing one of these moments right now or whether we'll face them somewhere in the course of the next year or the next few years or the next moments of our life, I pray that you would give us wisdom to continually look to you, to respond in a way, in a way that grows our faith in you, that grows our trust in you, that keeps us coming back to you because you have the answers and you do work all things for good according to your purposes. And God, I pray that you would give us wisdom to put into practice all of the other things regularly that you use to grow our faith so that when we face these moments, we don't get shaken because we have a solid foundation for where you move. And so God, use these moments to grow and to stretch our faith and our trust in you so we can believe in you the way you want us to believe in you and have a relationship with you the way you want us to have a relationship with you. We love you and we pray this all in Jesus' strong name. Amen.